0: This evening's reading is from Exodus chapter 16 and it's on page 73. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day... And all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost lay on the ground. Thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day... They gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any but on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, that is why, On the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. And they ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one tenth of an ephah. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. So
1: it's always good when your reading concludes with explaining the weights and measures to you, because that's the thing we're really excited about. So, <laughs> 45 minutes later, you'll have learned a lot more about omas and ephahs. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as I speak this evening, I pray that you would speak far louder, that we would hear your word and be challenged, stirred up, and love you more deeply through it. Amen. Well, I've been married nearly three years now, and uh, I've learned many important lessons during that time. One fascinating thing I've discovered uh, is that Sarah can do a truly astonishing range of things in her sleep. Uh, That can include not just talking, but having full conversations, uh, teaching lessons, uh, and on one particularly memorable occasion, trying to defuse a bomb that she thought someone had put in our washing basket. Uh, That was quite a shock to me uh, at 2 a.m. Um, I've also discovered the vital lesson that I think I will share in every marriage prep session I ever do, that really just the best thing to do when you've not really been listening is just say, actually, I wasn't listening there, rather than trying to pretend that you have been. Um, And I've discovered that perhaps surprisingly the most romantic thing that you can ever do for anyone, or certainly a lot of the time, is just take the bin out and do the dishes. I've learned an awful lot. But I think one of the the strangest things I've discovered uh, while being married is this strange thing that I find that a whole life, day to day, mostly centers around food. Now, part of that is that Sarah and I are just two people who really enjoy cooking and eating. Part of that is Sarah is someone who just gets very, very grumpy when she hasn't been fed. But I also think there's actually something slightly deeper going on there. There's something quite fundamental. Food, in a weird way, acts as a kind of structure to our life, the kind of weekly rituals and the daily rituals that come with it. For example, our eating our evening meal together is actually one of the few times that we guarantee that we have every day. It's where we kind of sit and catch up and find out how the other person is doing. It's really fundamental to how we order ourselves as a household. Um, and also there's things like the fact that we go out for meals to celebrate special occasions. And and the fact that, or maybe we'll get ourselves a treat food when we particularly want to cheer ourselves up. Or or the fact that we use food and open our home and cook for people to show hospitality. Food is really actually quite fundamental to how we live our lives. One of the really bizarre things I've noticed since uh, being married, uh, I feel I should stress that before I was married, I was actually very well house trained. I didn't need a wife to kind of whip me into shape. But, But when I find myself home alone now, when Sarah goes away, I do this strange thing where I go from eating delicious home-cooked food that I make myself and that are full of vegetables and and healthy things like vitamins, and I basically trade all that for a diet that is basically 30 cups of tea a day, and nachos eaten straight from the bag. I I just go back to being some sort of caveman, Um, and I think that that says something, that, that food isn't really just about food, like I say, it's this fundamental thing. Food is about how we live. It's about how we order ourselves and even something about our identity. Food is is fundamentally about relationship. And I think we can learn from that that food really, really does matter, however mundane it might seem. I mention all this because actually our, our passage today is at its most basic level about two things. It's about relationship and it's about food. So so let's look in the passage and explore some of that. So we we get to this uh, opening statement uh, at the beginning of chapter 16, and it begins with the people grumbling. Uh, Without giving too much away about what may come in the rest of this sermon series, this is going to become a running theme for the people of Israel. They've been out of Egypt somewhere, maybe a month and a half, it seems to imply, at the beginning, and, and this cry starts to go up. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Israelites as a people are not known for their understatement, it seems. If I were God at this stage, I I would be very tempted, if if not to let them die, then to at least let them go hungry for a bit. I I would be quite vindictive and petty in this situation, just to teach them a lesson. But God doesn't behave that way. Thankfully, God is not like me. God responds straight away. He's going to provide food for this grumbling people, he tells Moses. And notice straight away, God says something that, that hints that this is not just about food, but but hints at something broader that's going on, a bigger theme. God says to Moses, in this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So this isn't just an exercise in mass catering for a hungry people. There is something much bigger going on here, something that speaks of the relationship between God and his people. So God does it. He gives his people food. And there's so many fascinating elements to this story. I, we could be here all night looking at each element, but I've tried to boil it down to a few key ones. So, the one thing I really find really striking in this passage is this wonderful description of the manor itself, because it just seems so odd. You almost get the sense that whoever's describing this scene can't, can't really get their head around it. They can't explain it properly because they've got nothing else to really compare it to. So, so they come out with these analogies that sort of get you some of the way there. So it's described as appearing on the ground, as if from nowhere. And it's a little bit like snowflakes. It's kind of something that appears and is simply on the ground. It melts away in the heat. And it's described as being white, like coriander seed. And it tastes like wafers made with honey you really do get that sense of something that is just beyond explanation. It's it's clearly important, but they can't quite get their heads around about what it is. And I also, I, I really love this detail that everyone has exactly enough to eat. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed and this bread isn't just heavenly in the sense of its origin where it's appeared from but actually it, it seems to be speaking something of the abundance of god's generosity it's heavenly in the sense that it points to heaven this kind of satisfying thing where everyone receives exactly what they need it's another detail that i love that seems really key to this story and then as i've mentioned we have this whole thread that runs through the story of God testing the Israelites, seeing if they can live by his law, live according to his ways. So notice, for instance, very early on, we hear the importance of keeping Sabbath because the Israelites seem to be called to imitate this God who rested on the seventh day. It's really crucial to who they are. And notice as well, there's this emphasis on on keeping God's law. They're on their way to Sinai. We know that later on, they're going to receive God's law in full. And, and there's this first foretaste of that they're called to live in a particular way, to be in relationship with God. And there's also this odd little detail at the end that they preserve in a little jar this, this piece of the manna for all time. And it seems to be speaking something of Israel's call to be a worshipping people. They're called to remember the things who've, that God has done and, and worship him because of it. It, it seems to be this pointer to, to who Israel is called to be, who, what their relationship with God is meant to be. So you've got all those themes about abiding in God's law running through this whole passage. And, and there's one last thing that I think is really important that I want to take away from the passage um, in particular, and, and that's that the Israelites absolutely mess this whole thing up. They do not get it right. They do not keep the rules. Even when God is literally pouring provision from heaven... They cannot quite live it. And yet, right at the end of this passage, we have that wonderful line, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The Israelites aren't just going to mess up in this one instance. This This is, again, going to be a running theme. The Israelites will keep getting it wrong. And God is still going to provide for them. I think that's really crucial god is going to provide for them for 40 years solid until they get to this land that there is their own and even then god is providing he's just providing by giving them what they need for themselves god is a god of grace and mercy and love in this passage he is being depicted as the god who generously provides out of his mercy and love to his people no matter how they respond to him I've only covered a few little points there, and I feel like I've already thrown quite a lot of information at you. And that just gives a sense of how dense this passage is, how much is going on here. Uh, There's so many things we could focus on. But I wanted to to use these details so that we could step back a little bit and see the bigger picture of what's going on. Because this is a story which is part of a bigger story of the book of Exodus. And it's part of a bigger story of of obviously the Old Testament. And then in turn, the bigger story scripture which is the story that we are caught up in the story of God's dealings with his people and and this is a story of God calling a people who are oppressed because of who they are who seem to have lost their identity they've forgotten where they've come from and then God calls them out from Egypt to form them and give them a new identity as his own people to form them and bring them into a relationship with himself One of the mistakes I think we make when we read Exodus in English is is very simply that we think it's all about the Exodus. Uh, And you might say to me, well, the clue's in the name there. The book of Exodus is about the Exodus. Well, yes, that that could be an argument, but that's actually not the Hebrew name for the book. The Hebrew name for the book is Shemot, which uh, simply means names. I don't think there's any particularly profound spiritual reason for that. It's just the second word of the book and, and the rabbis liked it. But I do think it speaks something of a deeper truth of what the book of Exodus is about. It's about this story of God forming a people. I think names is quite appropriate because it is all about identity. It's about the people of God being formed into who they're meant to be. And yes, freeing them is vital. The Exodus is vital. But it's just one stage on a longer journey of their becoming this people. And at this point, the people, having been freed, find themselves in the wilderness. And God is beginning that journey with them. The journey of forming them into the people that he wants them to be. Forming them into the people of the covenant, the people who worship, the people who witness to who God is throughout all the world. And where does God start with that? Well, he gives them food. He feeds them. He takes them out into the wilderness and then he provides. He gives them an actual heavenly banquet for them to feed where everyone is given enough. God makes his people quite simply by feeding his people. Because this is, as I said, this is a story of relationship. And it's a story of food. And this is a story of a God who seems to offer both. And as I said, this this story is part of a much bigger story. And that story is played out through the whole Bible. And actually, food continues to remain at the heart of that. Uh, While I was writing this sermon, I I tried to think just off the top of my head, here are some New Testament stories where food is really central. And I slightly staggered myself with how many uh, came to mind just off the top of my head, never mind the ones you could find with a little bit of searching. So here are just a few examples of some really key stories So first of all, we have Jesus feeding the 5,000, which seems to be something that deliberately echoes our passage today. Uh, It's the only miracle, incidentally, recorded in all four of the Gospels, which suggests, other than obviously the resurrection, that's pretty crucial too. But uh, this is the only miracle in Jesus' life and ministry, which is recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, And that seems to be because it's so vital. Uh, And once again, we have this image of God calling his people together with food and providing for them. He also tells parables, lots of which center about food. And the one that strikes me in particular is where he invites people into a banquet. And this is a symbol of how we enter the kingdom of God. This this invitation to a banquet acts as how we are formed into that distinctive people. So Jesus used it in his stories as well to express really crucial things. And what does this the last thing that Jesus does before he dies on the cross, he has a meal. He shares a meal with his friends. And not only to that, he says, keep on celebrating this meal. Celebrating that meal is is one of the key things that marks us out as a Christian people, as the people of God. And it's a meal. It's food. And after the resurrection, we don't hear a great deal about what Jesus does after the resurrection, but I can think of at least two stories that involve food. This one, with the road to Emmaus, Jesus breaking bread to reveal himself. And a second one, which is simply him cooking food on a beach for his friends. Food is really, really crucial to Jesus' ministry. And it doesn't stop with Jesus either. So straight after the story of Pentecost, where we hear about the Holy Spirit coming, what do we hear that the apostles devoted themselves to next? They devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer because the people of God once again find themselves formed around a table where they eat together and naturally and one of those vital stories in the book of Acts is about Peter receiving this vision that leads him to realize that, that the people of God is not just now confined to Israel but will include Gentiles those people who were not descendants of these folk freed from Egypt and that vision involves food It's all about food. We have yet another story about people being included into the kingdom of God, people being drawn in to relationship with God through food. It's absolutely central. And these are just the examples that, as I say, I've thought about off the top of my head. I'm sure there are others. And then above all, tying all these together, we have what all of these are pointing to. We have Jesus who says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So we have jesus who in his life and death and resurrection acts as the fulfillment of all of these different stories who is the climax of the story of the people of israel and the old testament and is the fulfillment of, of what the church is called to be we have jesus the bread of heaven and our story with its bread from heaven is a hint to the full revelation because what God has planned is not simply to feed his people anymore with a sort of one-off shower of wondrous provision, great though that is but God himself is going to come down from heaven and all who believe in him will receive the bread of life and be formed into his people together to be eternally satisfied not just temporarily we are invited to be part of this great story which is laid out in the Bible, which is played out through meals throughout scripture and today. This is a story about food and about relationship and a God who wants to be in relationship with us and who works that out in wonderful and miraculous and very simple and everyday means. So we find ourselves in this great story. We are caught up in that story. It doesn't end at any point. It's going until it's fulfilled when Jesus returns. So how do we live out this story? How do we live out our identity as a people who are called and fed by the bread of heaven? Now, I think I'm probably going to suggest something that sounds familiar at this point, and I'm going to suggest that the answer lies in food, and in relationships. And that, that the idea that food is central might not sound very profound or very spiritual, but I actually think there's something profoundly countercultural that, that we can offer here by how we eat together and share bread. So I've got three ways that I think are really crucial to living this out. Firstly, I think it's vital that we simply eat together as church. I, I think that is an absolutely central thing that we're called to do, just as those first disciples were after Pentecost. I was really struck as we were having the meal after Asker's baptism, actually, what a wonderful thing it is that that we can gather and eat. And actually, there there really isn't anywhere else in society where people of different ages and different backgrounds, different classes, different nations, and in some cases, different languages just gather and eat together. That, That doesn't really happen. And you forget get that in church just quite how extraordinary and miraculous that everyday thing is that does not happen in very many places at all and yet that is something that we can do so simply because God has drawn us together to be a distinctive people across the world and in this very building and elsewhere God is calling us together and a way that we express that is through food now Part of that can be eating as a whole church body, but it also, I think, extends to the very ordinary disciplines of simply inviting each other into our homes, showing hospitality. Paul tells us, show hospitality to the saints at every opportunity. It really is such a simple thing, and yet it's so vital to our identity as a people drawn together, as a family. So one, I suggest that we simply eat together more. Second, I think we really need to relearn this connection we find in in scripture between food and relationship. The two seem to go together. Actually, I I was reflecting on this, and I think that in our society, that link is very often broken. People don't eat together straightforwardly. Many families, particularly families where relationships are quite fraught, that's often expressed by the fact that people no longer eat together or cook together anymore. I recently hosted a Chinese student Um, Sarah and I did at our home Uh, and we ended up I can't remember how the conversation came around but we ended up explaining to her that in the UK children are taught cooking in schools she was horrified that children might be taught cooking at school because obviously your parents do that, that's just a very basic thing cooking is something you do as a family she couldn't get her head around the idea that, that we might need schools to teach us that because that's just a bizarre concept to her And yet that's such a normal thing in our society that we don't even question it. We need to relearn that connection between relationship and food, that strange multi-generational thing, that strange sharing together that only happens when we gather around a meal table. We need to recapture that. I think we need to recapture that wonderful symbolism we see throughout scripture, that, that great symbolism of food that God uses over and over again to communicate with us. So part of that is the very obvious thing of of communion, but actually how often do we think of communion as a meal? That, That in some way we are sharing a meal together. I think that's so vital. It's not some strange abstract spiritual act. It is simply the disciples breaking bread together. It's not complicated, but it is powerful. I think it involves recapturing the symbolism of food as gift. We prayed in the Lord's prayer, give us today our daily bread because food is a gift from God. It's, it's a reminder that we are as dependent on God's goodness as the Israelites were in the wilderness. We're, we're called to remember that contingency, that sense that we are utterly dependent. And I think there's a very simple thing about affirming that Jesus is Lord of everything. So one of the things I've been struck by over the last few years is, is how often I limit Jesus' reign, his, his significance... To, to sort of the special churchy spiritual things, you know, kind of prayer and Bible reading—that's really how you you meet with Jesus. But if we re- think that Jesus is Lord of everything, that has to extend to the ordinary and the everyday. We have to recognise Jesus as Lord of all our life, and that includes the really boring, seemingly unexciting bits. So there's three things that I think we need to relearn. We need to relearn hospitality and eating together. We need to relearn that food and relationship go hand in hand. And we need to recapture the powerful symbolism that God uses with food to communicate over and over again to his people in the scripture, but also to his people today. And I think if we really get that right, we have something truly countercultural there. We have something that is not of our society. It, It witnesses to a people who are not exclusive, who invite all to gather in one place. It witnesses to something that is simply not in our culture. So let's celebrate food. (coughs) Let's celebrate food and relationship and the God who feeds us both through daily meals, through the everyday, through the mundane, and who's also set an eternal feast for us, who is drawing us towards his heavenly banquet where all will be satisfied by Jesus, who is the bread of heaven, who came down for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful riches we find in this passage. We pray that as we go from this place, we will learn what it means to live as your people more and more and we pray that you would draw us up into that great story told throughout scripture and help us to live it out every day amen